as we know, the Lord used the history of Israel, his people, to reveal truths about himself and his relationship to men. To reveal truths about himself and his relationship to men. And Second Chronicles reveals much about the Lord and men. As we'll see as we go through here. A nearer exact English rendering from the Hebrew in what we refer to as chronicles is, quote, the words of the days, unquote, or the words of the events, unquote. Hence our English term, we just call it chronicles. The words of the days, the words of the events. The author of the books of chronicles is thought by most scholars to be Ezra. The same Ezra who has a book of the Bible named after him, that Ezra. The last recorded event in Chronicles is the decree of Cyrus in 538 BC, permitting the Jews to return from their exile in Babylon. Much of what was covered in 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Samuel is covered in 1st and 2nd Chronicles, but with unique information from Ezra not told in the other works. Ezra seemed to want to emphasize the good of David and Solomon rather than their failures. But their failures are readily seen in Kings and Samuel, and Ezra points men to those works in First and Second Chronicles. So he's not trying to just cover them up. He points you to those works so you can see their failures as men. But he wants to paint a rosier picture, and he wants to bring in information that wasn't in the other works. Ezra, of course, was a reformer. He was a reformer, trying to get people to take their faith seriously and make application of it to their lives and in life, society at large. That's what a reformer does. He tries to impact the individual to deepen their relationship with the Lord, apply the things of the Lord to their life, and also he addresses the culture, society at large, in the application to apply the law and word of God to society at large. So Ezra was a reformer. Second Chronicles begins in the year 970 B.C. That was a while ago, like 3,000 years. That was the year David died, 970 B.C. First Chronicles 29 speaks of David's death and final words and is transferring the throne to his son Solomon. And it's good to read chapter 29. I just want to read to you two verses of what David said. Turn back one page to 1 Chronicles 29 and look at verses 18 and 19 at what David said because I think his words are heartfelt. They are the thoughts and desires of any good man who loves the Lord regarding people and regarding his children. And David says in verse 18, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the intent of the thoughts of the heart of your people and fix their heart toward you. Wow. Fix their heart toward you. That's the cry. That's the desire of any good man. That's what he wants to see amongst men in the earth is that right there. Keep this forever in the intent of the thoughts of the heart of your people and fix their heart toward you. And then look what he says regarding his son. And give my son Solomon a loyal heart to keep your commandments and your testimonies and your statutes to do all these things and to build the temple for which I have made provision. These are the thoughts and desire of any good father, of any good man. He desires his children and other men to want the Lord, to live faithful to him, with full fealty in their hearts towards him. That is the heart's cry of every good man. Don't let them just be religious. Let them truly love you. May their lives count in the earth. May you cause no small stir through their lives with the days you've allotted them on this planet, Lord. That's the cry of every good man. 
So we get to chapter 1, verse 1 of Second Chronicles, and it says, Now Solomon, the son of David, was strengthened in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and exalted him exceedingly. Here we have a great start. This was a great beginning for Solomon, such words from his father as we just saw, and now these words from history as we just read. And Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the captains of thousands and of hundreds, to the judges and to every leader in all Israel, the heads of the fathers' houses. Then Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place that was at Gibeon. Gibeon was about seven miles west of Jerusalem. For the tabernacle of meeting with God was there, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness. But David had brought up the ark of God from Kiriath-Yerim, to the place David had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. So their tabernacle's over in Gibeon, and the ark's over there by Jerusalem. They're getting everything organized. Now the bronze altar that Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made, that was way back at the beginning when they came out of Egypt, he put before the tabernacle of the Lord. Solomon and the assembly sought him there. And Solomon went up there to the bronze altar before the Lord. That's who he's seeking. It's the Lord he sought, which was at the tabernacle of meeting and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. This was no small affair. Verse 7, and the Lord appears to Solomon, and that's where I want to get to. It says, on that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, ask, what shall I give you? That would be awesome, right? God appearing to you, saying, I will... I mean, what would you say? I know what your average dopey American would say. They view that as like a genie in a bottle, right? It would have something to do with wealth and ease, I'm sure. Well, we'll see that Solomon had a little different answer than the average American. It says in verse 8, And Solomon said to God, You have shown great mercy to David my father. Think of that. You have shown great mercy. Notice what's important to Solomon, what he notes about what he's seen in life. And he notes the mercy that God has shown to his father. And have made me king in his place. So he's thinking about his position now. His dad's dead. He's not on the throne anymore. Solomon, me, I'm on the throne now. And the thing that I'm going to ask of you is the most important thing regarding the most important thing that my life's about, which is the governance of your people, Israel. And look what he says. Now, O Lord God, let your promise to David, my father, be established. For you have made me king over a people like the dust of the earth in multitude. Now give me wisdom and knowledge. That's what he asked for. Not a new Cadillac or whatever it is nowadays. What is it, Alexis? Is that the big car or a Tesla? You know, when I was young, it was a Cadillac. Who buys Cadillacs now? Like nobody, right? He doesn't ask for a Cadillac, a Tesla, or whatever else. He asks for wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people, for who can judge this great people of yours? He's taking very seriously his role as king. And the thing he asked for is not some personal matter for himself. He asked for wisdom and knowledge because he wants it for the people that he's governing over. How many magistrates in our day do you think talk like that? Think like that, right? How many think like that? Like zero? Some may say it when they first get involved in politics, but within one year it seems like 99.9% of them have been lobotomized and they have no interest in doing what's right before the Lord regarding their office. This is a big deal. He is intent on asking the Lord something that would benefit not just his own sick, sappy self, but all the peoples that he's putting him in governance over. That's a big deal. Then God said to Solomon, because this was in your heart, and you have not asked riches or wealth or honor or the life of your enemies. Notice the thing, the Lord knows mankind. <laughs> He's like, you didn't ask for all the crazy stuff that your average dopey person would ask for. You have not asked for riches or wealth 
or honor or the life of your enemies, nor have you asked long life, but have asked wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may judge my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you, and I will give you riches and wealth and honor such as none of the kings have had who were before you, nor shall any after you have the like. So he asked for wisdom and knowledge, and the Lord grants him wisdom and knowledge. And the Bible has much to say about wisdom and knowledge. Just look it up. Tremendous amount of verses in Holy Writ about wisdom and about knowledge. In fact, Scripture speaks of knowledge at the very beginning. In Genesis 2.9, remember the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Right at the beginning, knowledge comes out and has to do with this little matter of good and evil. Both the Old Testament and New Testament speak of the importance of knowledge dozens of times. Proverbs 1.7 declares that the fear of the Lord, something you never hear preached about in American Christianity, or if it does, they totally redefine what fear means. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The knowledge to know right from wrong, good from evil, justice from injustice. Knowledge. Paul declared in Romans 7 that the law of God brings us the knowledge of sin. And of course, knowledge covers much more than just these areas, important as they are. Knowledge of God, the knowledge of Christ, the knowledge of God in Christ the knowledge of his word, knowledge of his ways, the knowledge of God's law regarding all areas of life. The knowledge of God's law regarding all areas of life. Knowledge regarding all matters of life. Even regarding our work. Knowledge is a big deal and God encompasses it all in his law and word. As Christian people, we should desire knowledge as the scriptures command us to love God with all our Minds, You know that little thing you're supposed to check at the door of most churches that you enter in America today? God actually commands us to love him with it. So we should love to read, we should love to learn, and we should be able to discern between good knowledge and bad or evil knowledge. As there is plenty of pretend knowledge proffered by many. The scriptures say that knowledge brings to men strength. The scriptures say that knowledge brings to men wisdom. The scriptures say that knowledge brings to men understanding. And the scriptures say that knowledge brings to men good behavior. We should desire knowledge, good knowledge. As you acquire good knowledge, you're able to discern rotten, evil, bad knowledge on its face immediately. Or almost immediately. Sometimes you have to ponder it a little. They dress it up so well. Correct? Scripture declares in Proverbs 18, verse 15, that the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. And so here we see wisdom and knowledge being associated with each other. And when you look at much of Holy Writ, they are associated with each other. Wisdom and knowledge are associated with each other. So Solomon asked for knowledge, and he also asked for wisdom. Both the Old Testament and New Testament speak of the importance of wisdom dozens of times, just as it speaks of knowledge dozens of times. In Psalm 111, verse 10, Psalm 111, verse 10, for those of you taking notes, we see that Scripture not only declares the fear of the Lord to be the beginning of knowledge, but the Scripture here in this passage declares that the fear of the Lord is also the beginning of wisdom. So what's the beginning of knowledge and wisdom? The fear of the Lord. Taking what he has to say seriously, understanding them, not joining in the arrogance of man and impugning his law, word, and gospel, impugning his knowledge, but rather fearing him and taking his knowledge seriously. And his knowledge encompasses all areas of our life and all areas of life. The two are associated, wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom is the ability to apply knowledge to life situations. Got that? 
Wisdom is the ability to apply knowledge to life situations. The two are associated, knowledge and wisdom. Look at Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20. Turn over there or scroll on your device to Proverbs chapter 1, and look what it says in verse 20, and we'll read through verse 22. It says, Wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open square. She cries out in the chief concourses. At the openings of the gates in the city, she speaks her words. And look what she says. How long, you simple ones, you dopes, will you love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. See the association between the two? There is an association between wisdom and knowledge, and dopes don't like knowledge, therefore they lack wisdom. You can have lots of knowledge, by the way, and still be unwise. But if you're wise, you love knowledge. You're a reader, you're a thinker. You're an observer. You're a reader of his word, of his law. Look at Proverbs chapter 2, how it goes on and on about knowledge and wisdom. It says in verse 1, My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you so that you incline your ear to wisdom, so that you incline your ear to wisdom, you've gained this knowledge, the commands, and apply your heart to understanding. Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. See the wisdom and knowledge associated with each other? Notice that the writer of this passage here in Proverbs says if you search for these things like silver, if you search for these things like riches. Why? Because of the nature of man. It's a grievous thing to realize as you grow older, young people, that the vast majority of people live for one thing, me, myself, and I, and the acquirement of riches. Money, money, oh, and money. So the appeal is made to wanting these things, wisdom and knowledge, like you want silver, like you want riches. Look what it says, and find the knowledge of God, for the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge. And understanding, he stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the path of justice, preserves the way of his saints, then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity in every good path. You'll understand right from wrong, good from evil, justice from injustice. Something this culture seems completely incapable of, those simple things any longer. When wisdom enters your heart, he says in verse 10, and knowledge is pleasant to your soul. See the association? When wisdom enters your heart, and knowledge is pleasant to your soul, discretion will preserve you, understanding will keep you, to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perversity of the wicked, whose ways are crooked, and who are devious in their paths, to deliver you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words." You think I'm a doom and gloom type of guy? Look at this passage. Do you think the word of God knows something about the nature of man? And how he ticks? Look at all the descriptions there, which we could just spend another hour and stop the rest of my sermon examining. And then look at Proverbs chapter 4, and this is the last thing we're going to look at here. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. The writer says, wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom, and in all you're getting, get understanding, exalt her, talking about wisdom, and she will promote you, she will bring you honor when you embrace her. Amen? Wisdom and knowledge, massively important, and they're the two things that 
Solomon asked for, not just for his own self-aggrandizement, but for his office to be a blessing to the people of God in the governance of their nation. And this wisdom that Solomon asked for, it's available to us. James chapter 1, verse 5, right? If any of you lacks wisdom, what did James say? Let him ask of God, and he will give it to you. Every Christian man, every Christian woman can ask of God for wisdom, and God will give it to you. Understand the world, just as it has false and bad knowledge, so also the world has its own wisdom, worldly wisdom, and the wisdom of the world is folly. It looks alluring. Everyone praises you when you espouse it, but it's false and it leads to death. And God repeatedly speaks about this in his word. I just want to show you three quick examples Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 3, or scroll there on your device. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. God is chastising his people, and he says, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. What does it say? Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this that he understands and knows me. That doesn't make you weep. If that doesn't hit you in the heart, I don't know what would. You lay aside your worldly wisdom. You lay aside your great military prowess. You lay aside all your riches. Here's something you need to glory in, understanding and knowing the Lord. Look at Isaiah chapter 47, Isaiah. Chapter 47 and verse 10. God is chastising his people and he says, For you have trusted in your wickedness. You have said no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. (laughs) Your wisdom and your knowledge, there's good Knowledge and there's bad knowledge. There's good wisdom and there's bad wisdom. Understand that. We must draw close to God and his wisdom. When we read his word, the message of his word is so radically in opposition to the thinking of the world. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for one final example of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. The Apostle Paul says, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Did you hear that? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Not in just in all these Tom, Dick, and Harry things, but even when it comes to the matter of salvation itself, because that's what Paul's addressing here, God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. Their wisdom does not bring them to God. They are full of themselves. They're full of arrogance, rebellion, pride. They think they're smarter than God. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. That would be you and I. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Same type of thing the prophets were saying in it that we looked at earlier. Notice Christ himself is declared to be the wisdom of God. There's something you ponder. You know why the scriptures talk about the unsearchable riches of Christ? Not that you can't know them, but that they're never-ending. They're so boundless. 
And there you go. Ponder that. Dig the deeps. Dig the depths of that. That Christ is the wisdom of God. And both Old and New Testament scriptures packed with that matter. Solomon was granted wisdom and knowledge from the Lord. Solomon produced wisdom literature. The book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon. These are all what scholars call wisdom literature from Solomon. There's also a work called Wisdom of Solomon, or the Words of Solomon, whichever you want to call it, or the Book of Wisdom, I should say. It's part of the Apocrypha. Early churchmen never recognized that work as canonical. At the Council of Trent, and also for the Orthodox, they later embraced it as canonical just to besmirch us Protestants and said they were canonical, even though they hadn't been up before then to the 1500s. Part of the Apocrypha, still an excellent work to read, and you can see the early church fathers referring to the wisdom of Solomon in some of their writings. It's worth reading just as First and Second Maccabees. Everyone should read that, part of the Apocrypha. These are writings that were viewed not as canonical, but having great value. You know how I tell you sometimes, read this book? And I'm like, read this book? <laughs> read the book, <laughs> you know, right? It's like one of those kind of books. It has great value to it. Read it. That's what they were saying about. So Solomon's granted wisdom and knowledge, and he preserves this in literature that he wrote. Solomon was given this wisdom and knowledge in order to properly govern God's people, as we have seen. And then look at how the verse ends there. Go back to 2 Chronicles and look at how verse 12 ends. God has made it clear here that he's giving him wisdom and knowledge that you, that, you may judge my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. But then here's the rest of the verse. And I will give you riches and wealth and honor such as none of the kings have had who are before you, nor shall any after you have the like. Now, a lot of ministers might take that verse and then tell you, yeah, if you really dig in and follow after God, you'll get rich. Now, yeah, people love that. And there's a truth to that. There's a biblical truth to that. Putting Christ first and all these other things will be added on to you. How you'll be taken care of. But I want to do something wholly different than what the average American churchman would do in order to satiate the eyeballs of your average American, how you can use God and Jesus and be good about your big barns of wealth. Right? I want to give you warning about your wealth and your ease. Herein, the last portion of verse 12, herein was the nascent elements that became Solomon's undoing. Because Solomon did become undone. And it was riches and ease and his foreign wives and all the luxury and pomp and wealth he had that became his undoing. Think of that. One of the wisest men who ever lived was undone by wealth and ease. I once did a sermon entitled, Luxury, Enemy of Our Souls. Because the scriptures has much to say about guarding our hearts and the danger of wealth and ease and what it does to men, how it unmans men. One of the wisest men who ever lived, undone by wealth and ease, Solomon himself, even his family after he was dead, when you read, and don't do it now, mark it down for your notes, 1 Kings eleven forty three through 12, 19. 1 Kings eleven forty three through 12, 19. We read about his son, Rehoboam, Rehoboam, who took over for Solomon. And what did he want? More wealth and ease. More wealth and ease. That's what he wanted. And because of that, the northern kingdom split off from Judah and Benjamin. 
fractured the nation of Israel. This love for wealth and ease that Rehoboam wanted because he didn't listen to the old guys and rein in the taxes. Rather, he listened to the young guys and said, get more. And the Lord had warned the children of Israel regarding this matter of wealth and ease long before that. Long before Chronicles. Long before Rehoboam. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. I want you to look at that briefly. Deuteronomy chapter 8. The Lord has brought his people out of Egypt. And he says to them, Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe. Guard your heart. Do these things that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you. You're in a world right now. You're out in the wilderness in your Christian walk. God's humbling you. He's testing you. You make it through. He uses you in ways. Once he puts within you the character he was trying to develop, you could have never imagined. So he says, you had these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he, the Lord, humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Amen, that knowledge, that wisdom. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these forty years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. So the Lord notes their obedience. He notes that they're following his commandments. The 40 years in the wilderness is coming to an end. He's humbled them, he's tested them, he's built good character in them. But then look what he says in verse 7, because things are going to change. The climate in which they live, where God's providing everything, this manna that they had to eat day and night, you know, your soul's not wearing out on your shoes and your garment's not getting thin like you're going through the checking thing at the airport or something and they can see right through. All that kind of stuff is over with. That Spartan living is done. You're going into the promised land and things are going to become good for you. You're going to obtain wealth. You're going to have some ease. And look what he says in verse 6. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land and a land of of brooks of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. Lots of great resources. When you have eaten and are full, Then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. But then look what he says in verse 11. Beware. Luxury, the enemy of our souls. Beware. Be on your guard. When you get this wealth, when you get this ease, beware, is what the Lord says to his people. That you do not forget the Lord your God, by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today. We have to guard our hearts. There's something about wealth and ease and what it does to most men. Not all men, but most men. And they forget God. Forget God. They forget him. He goes on and says, Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which are 
Your fathers did not know that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good. Then you say in your heart, once you've become wealthy and you've built all this stuff and done all these things, then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Then it shall be that if by any means, if you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish as the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord. And I submit to you, all of America is drunk on wealth and ease. And I submit to you, our nation has forgotten God. And we do not serve him. In fact, we make laws over and over again that completely contradict the law and word of God. And we need to repent. We all need to repent. All of America needs to repent. Because we already see the consequence in our land of forgetting God, don't we? And the evil abounds amongst us. Luxury and ease is an awful thing, a danger to men's souls. Men have observed this down through the ages. Good men have had to watch and lament this in their times as we do in ours, where their nation is destroying itself and they have to watch how most are consumed by their wealth and ease, their food and drink and their homes and all their vacations and all their stuff, drunk on it all completely indifferent to the evils, idols, and tyrants of their day. Complete indifference. They just pursue that stuff. Good men, doesn't matter what century. Chrysostom, who lived back in the 4th and 5th century, said this. He was an early churchman. He said, quote, Like a winter torrent, luxury overthrows all. There is nothing to stop its course. It is the time for war the time for contest, and do you sit and enjoy yourself? Are you fattening yourself when about to wrestle? The adversary stands grinding his teeth, and are you giving yourself to jollity and devoting yourself to the table? Unquote. So you all have experienced that. Anyone who's engaged in confronting the evils, the idols, and the tyrants of our day I've had those times where you look at your fellow Americans, overwhelming indifference to it all, drunk on their wealth and ease. It's the only thing they pursue. Samuel Davies, 18th century preacher during the Revolutionary War era here in America, said this, quote, Let our country, let religion, liberty and property And all be lost, yet still they have their diversions. Luxury spreads her feast and unmans her effeminate guests. Unquote. There's something about luxury and ease that has an ill effect upon the vast majority of people. Few men can obtain wealth, can obtain ease, and continue to live right before the Lord, not become undone by it. Luxury and ease effeminizes us, makes us weak and soft, makes us fail in the fight, actually takes us out of the fight. Luxury, riches, and affluence have been the undoing of many a person and of many a nation down through history. David Thoreau once wrote in his work on the duty of civil disobedience, which is a work all my kids had to read, which I now have been giving to all my older grandkids, Thoreau said, the most dangerous man to the state is a man who has nothing. The most dangerous man to the state is a man who has nothing. And this is precisely, brothers and sisters, why governments are motivated to create the welfare state. Why 48% of Americans now get part of their money for food from the government. While everyone sat around for a year and a half and gathered paycheck after paycheck from the government. The most dangerous man to the state is a man who has nothing, and this is precisely why governments are motivated to create the welfare state. 
They know that most men, once they have things, they no longer have nothing, they now have things, will be much more compliant, easy to mollify, and more readily give their submission to the state. Hence their welfare state. The politics of dependency. As Sitting Bull said to his fellow braves, quote, you are fools to make yourselves slaves to a piece of fat bacon, some hard tack, and a little sugar and coffee. Unquote. Why do you say that? That's all most men want. Give me those things. May have my car in my driveway, my movie to watch on TV, and my six-pack, or my 10,000th let's do the Bible study but never act upon it Bible study, and I'm good. I'm good. Remember the stages that our evangelical churchmen and leaders have brought us through. First, they told us there will not be any need to fight. You know, because we're all going to get raptured out. So there won't be any need to fight. Number two... They told us there may come a time when it is necessary to fight. They started seeing things get a little worse. Well, we might have to fight a little. Then number three, they told us, well, it's too early to fight. And then number four, they now tell us it's too late to fight. We've lost the culture war, which is just dumb because the culture war is never over. It never ends. You might think it's over because you're indifferent towards it, but one day it's going to walk up to your front doorstep, knock on your door, and come in your living room while you're busy feeling spiritual about your indifference and not worrying, not having any anxiety. I don't have any worry or anxiety either. But that doesn't keep me from confronting evil, idols, and tyrants. They must be confronted. And that's what Christians and churchmen have done down through the ages. But we've built a Christianity that, oh, if you're concerned about things going on with civil government matters, oh, you need to calm yourself, brother. Get rid of your anxiety. You shouldn't have worry. Because that's the most important thing, you know, is that you not have worry and anxiety. That's very important. And then we wonder why men don't want anything to do with American Christianity. (coughs) How about because it sucks? How's that for a reason? Men don't want anything to do with it. How because it's so unbiblical? That's why they don't want anything to do with it. Because you have to take off your trousers and put on a skirt if you want to have something to do with it. Because you've got to talk like a little wispy little baby that your churchman teaches you to talk like... How long can it go on? How deadly is wealth and ease? It was the undoing of one of the wisest men the earth has ever seen. That's how deadly it is. Look at Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17. You might be thinking at this point, is he ever going to quit? I'm not. I still have a little bit to go. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14. Remember the Lord had warned his people, what we just saw in Deuteronomy 8? Beware. Well, look what he says regarding their king. When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, if you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, pardon me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren, you shall set his king over you. You shall not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother, but he shall not multiply, listen to it now, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. 
Okay, so God wants for like an Alfred the Great type of king. You know, somebody who's a very Spartan life. Somebody like David who was on the run half of his, you know, being anointed as king. So notice that. Keep your finger there. Go back to Second Chronicles verse 13. Because when you read it, you're left thinking to yourself, like, did Solomon read that passage and then decide, yeah, I'm smarter than God. <laughs> I'm going to do everything that he said wasn't a good thing. And that's why I say this is the nascent elements of brought, which brought about his downfall. All his interest in wealth and ease. And he obviously left that importance upon his son Rehoboam because he even wanted to get more of it. So Solomon came to Jerusalem from the high place that was at Gibeon from before the tabernacle of meeting and reigned over Israel. And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Weren't you talking about something about multiplying horses? He's got 12,000 of these things. Whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. Also, the king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones. Didn't the Lord say, Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself? This makes them so common that they're like stones. And he made cedars as abundant as the sycamores which are in the lowland. And Solomon had horses imported from Egypt. Where did God say not to get the horses from? Back there in Deuteronomy 17? From Egypt? Obviously, Egypt had some really awfully good horses. And God warned him back then, and then here he goes, and did he read this? Imported from Egypt in Kaveh. The king's merchants brought them in Kveh at the current price. They also acquired imported from Egypt a chariot for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. Thus, through their agents, they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. They're crazy. And, of course, the Lord also mentioned back in Deuteronomy 17 how they shouldn't multiply wives to themselves. Solomon had, what, over 800 wives? It's like he did everything the exact opposite. You know what the one thing he didn't do? Go back to Deuteronomy 17, and let's pick back up in verse 18. The one thing that was most needful for him to do, the thing Alfred the Great actually did, kept the law of God in his pocket. Carried it with him everywhere he went. Solomon, God's kings, were supposed to do that. Look what it says, verse 18 of Deuteronomy 17. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book. This is exactly why Alfred the Great did it, because of this passage, by the way. From the one before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Amen. And Rehoboam was the end. It was crazy, right? Solomon did exactly what the Lord warned the king should not do, and it was his undoing. Psalm 62, verse 10 says, if riches increase, do not set your heart on them. That's a command of Scripture. If riches increase, the Lord increases your riches, do not set your heart on them. If you don't have riches, don't set your heart on them. You know how many people I've known who told me they were going to get rich and then they would be able to serve the Lord full time and then they'd really start serving and they spend their whole lives trying to get rich? 98% of them never got rich. And the 2% that did that I knew, once they got rich, they didn't serve the Lord either. It's a rare man who can understand those things and not be taken in by them. They exist. They do. I've met them. But you have to guard your heart. You have to beware of the seductive influence of wealth and ease. 
In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, pardon me, starting in verse 24, Moses is spoken of, and it says, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Amen. That's the kind of people we need to be. Like Moses was. But Christ first. That's what matters. May he be praised. Let's stand up and we'll close in a word of prayer. Father, we give thanks and we give praise to you. We rejoice in you, O God, for your goodness to us, and we ask and pray that you would be glorified in our lives, that we would procure this knowledge, which is found in your law and word, that we would fear you, and that we would live in obedience to you, that we would have wisdom and understanding. Lord, I pray and ask that you put that upon the heart and mind of every person here and every person listening or watching, that they desire wisdom and knowledge, your wisdom, your knowledge. God, we give thanks to you for your goodness to us, that when our lives were meaningless, going nowhere, utter disarray and wickedness, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you redeemed us. You convicted us of our sin, showed us of our need for your Son, and the forgiveness that is available there, and that you redeemed us by his blood. We thank you for this. May we now live our lives in service to him who died in our stead, I pray, Lord. Be glorified, I pray, through our lives, in our lives, O God. May our days count to the glory of your name in the earth. Give our sons and daughters hearts hungry for you. Give our granddaughters and grandsons hearts hungry for you desirous of you. May we use our influence, little though it may be, in their lives, O God, to point them to you, to live faithful to you, with fealty in their hearts towards you. Deep love. Lord, we ask and pray that your spirit would move within them. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. May Christ be praised. You could be seated, and we're going to take communion at this time.